So far, we've run the gamut of issues and matters that pertain to the use, misuse, reverence, recreational use, abuse, and the careful unlocking of psychedelic potential in the recent past. There's some critical questions that require answering, though. Let me walk you through the conundrums that we'll ponder over the last two episodes. Question number one centers around the way psychologists are trained to work and what is currently being reimbursed or paid for. The current psychology practice deals with sessions under 60 minutes repeated multiple times. Instead, the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy sessions, especially the drug dosing sessions, run six to eight hours long. Yes, it does depend on the molecule used, be it psilocybin, MDMA, or ketamine, But irrespective of what the drug is, sessions are much longer than the current practice. What does this mean? It means the pace at which patients can be seen is going to be slower. So this puts pressure on the healthcare system. Question number two that requires thinking is, while psilocybin can be isolated from mushrooms or DMT from ayahuasca, the manner in which these sessions will be run and the duration of effect means that there will be chemists who will look for a better molecule. You don't get it? Let me give you an example. Aspirin, as we know, is the most simple antiplatelet molecule that acts to prevent clotting. It's provided to patients with a heart attack due to a blockage of the coronary artery that supplies the heart. But just because aspirin is the cheapest antiplatelet hasn't deterred pharmaceutical companies from developing a better antiplatelet molecule one that targets multiple parts of the platelet aggregation molecular cascade. This has led to the development of more potent antiplatelet medications that can be ingested less frequently and potentially are much better at reducing cardiovascular adverse events due to worsening of disease, so-called MACE, or Major Adverse Cardiac Events. In fact, The most recent antiplatelet medication that some of you might take is better than aspirin because it reduces the incidence of cardiac adverse events by more than 40%. Back in the day, can one simply have said, we'll be fine, let's just keep taking aspirin. It's cheap and readily available. Absolutely, one definitely could take that path. But if something is more potent, as efficacious, and potentially reduces the economic burden, Wouldn't it deserve a chance via careful clinical studies? It's easy to be idealistic, but please check your prescriptions if you're taking an age-old drug or something more recent. Similarly, it's only logical to imagine that psychedelic molecules will potentially get more potent, less of the systemic side effects, and may induce shorter psychedelic journeys, thereby reducing psychotherapy session times. So how are people aiming to do that? What's in it for investors and for scientists? Why do they care? Why should you care? This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelic molecules, an enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile yet comes back, soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders.
Let's pause and reflect on a few things. For a second, let's compare the half-lives of various psychedelic molecules that we know of. LSD effects can last for up to 20 hours, but with what pharmacologists call as the elimination half-life of three and a half hours. Psilocybin ingested orally can have a half-life of about three hours, with the effect lasting for up to six hours. MDMA is another molecule that we explored that depending on the type of molecule, what chemists call as an enantiomer can vary between three to seven hours with a duration of action of up to six hours. As a result, the psychotherapy sessions with these drugs by definition last for a long period of time depending on the property of the molecule. The only exception to the duration is DMT whose half-life is a mere 15 minutes or so, with the effects completely gone by 45 minutes, thereby earning the term businessman's lunch, as we alluded to in the earlier episodes. Yet, in the natural setting, ayahuasca ceremonies last longer due to the monoamine oxidase inhibitor that prevents the breakdown of DMT, thereby lasting longer in duration. So it is perfectly all right to imagine that in a group therapy session, as it might be done in a retreat, one would want the experience to last longer. But as these drugs are being explored for use via the healthcare systems, one cannot escape the situation where there will be a push for a more potent, shorter-acting drug that might provide the same degree of efficacy or greater and still does not carry the, the time liability that the existing molecules do so more patients can be attended to. I can sense a bit of uneasiness in you as you listen. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, you see. These substances occur in nature in a way that effects last longer. And so does other naturally occurring substances as well. But the way of the modern society invariably means, just like how MDMA was engineered, society will figure out a way to make psychedelic medicines mainstream. So it can only be done if it fits within the existing template to a certain extent. Let us explain this a bit more. We invited a few bright individuals to help us inform this line of thinking. Two of these individuals are CEOs of pharmaceutical startups in the psychedelic space and the third is a lead chemist of one of these companies. First, I think it helps to understand the perspectives of these individuals. Much like the patients and the people that we have spoken to so far on the podcast, it is crucial to appreciate the outlook and the journeys before one makes a blanket judgment on pharmaceutical companies and startups. So let us suspend the bias for a few minutes and listen to how they believe they can make psychedelic medicine field better for everyone. First, here is Gideon Shapiro explaining his journey. We can promise you that Gideon is not your run-of-the-mill pedigree chemist, but he definitely has a story. For all the psychedelic evangelists who are listening, Gideon is someone who has a fantastic link to someone that the field celebrates. But rather than us telling it to you, let's listen to it from Gideon himself. Okay. Well, I guess I was sort of always a bit of a hippie and iconoclast at heart growing up. Um, moved around a lot uh, as a kid. Actually, lived a year in England in '68. <laughs> uh, so my dad was a professor, uh, so we did move a lot. Um, 
But I guess it started, um, you know, I studied chemistry in college. I decided that, and I went to UNC Chapel Hill um, there. So I started my training as a chemist and loving molecules and how to make them and what they do. And so then I decided to go to grad school. And, and actually, you know, and then I had my own experience, of course, growing up, you know, we all smoked pot uh, in those days. And also in college, I did take LSD uh, experience uh, at that point. So I knew what LSD could do. I was op already open to, you know, mind expansion. Um, and then I, you know, that was that. It wasn't like, you know, I did a lot of uh, drugs or anything. It was just, I was more interested in the experience. And then, and then I went to Berkeley uh, for graduate school, also in chemistry. Um, and, and that's what we do. What we do is look at complicated molecules. But again, I did experience LSD again, and that reinforced my understanding a little bit. And it is, it is life-changing. You, you never forget an exper the experience, right? And it does open the mind. And so at that point, I also got curious, you know, very interested in molecules. LSD happens to be a very complicated molecule, right? And so I got interested also in it from, you know, the chemistry side. What's this molecule? What is it? The ergot alkaloids are incredibly complex natural products. Um, so I started reading, and then I, I picked up, you know, in the hippie town books, I picked up Albert Hoffman's book, uh, LSD, My Problem Child, and I read it. Um, at that point for curiosity and I was reading all the Huxley and all the usual books um, to get insight into that and I was also starting to think more about the right side of the brain drawing just getting into you know that kind of uh, side of, of the right side of the brain versus being you know the PhD scientist at, at the other end and so I read that and it was fascinating and then I actually decided to do my postdoc to go to Switzerland for I wanted to have another experience. I wanted to learn a new language, be able to think differently. And usually the Europeans come to America, so I did it always the backward way. I went to Switzerland to one of the most famous uh, organic chemists in Zurich at the institute called the ETH uh, to do my postdoc work on very complicated molecules again. And when I was there, guess what? Albert Hoffman is giving a lecture at the University of Zurich, and I get to go and see the man give the, give the talk and say all the stuff in his book um, in person. And then I get to know the Swiss mentality as well, so I can understand what he went through and what he, his bosses were. And then, crazily enough, as luck would have it, when it came time to seek a job, I didn't go back to the States. I took a job then at... Sando's Pharmaceuticals in Basel, where Albert Hoffman discovered uh, LSD and was just a phenomenal person. And in fact, the number one seller when I was joined the company was a compound called Hydrogen, which is an ergot mixture, which was the first drug that was actually approved for Alzheimer's disease. So the first drug, and they sold a lot of it, and nobody ever knew how much it worked, um, but you know that already the pipeline of products of ergot alkaloids that he developed was amazing. In fact, one of the big beta blockers called Pindolol <laughs> is a derivative of psilocybin. So basically, he took part of the psilocybin, attached it onto a beta blocker, and that was a great beta blocker blood pressure medicine. So he used that fundamental insight into ergot you know, early and, and did amazing things. And as, as luck would have it, as Ian said, my technician was the guy who had worked for Hoffman. I wound up in the same building and also inheriting the Ergot Alkaloid collection to organize it. He was sitting there rotting because 
after Hoffman left, Sondo basically got out. Well, well yeah. they scaled out. Because ergots are very tough drugs. They have a lot of metabolites, toxic side effects. So management never wanted to, <laughs> wanted to bury that stuff. It was, it was all in a basement. I organized the, the whole collection. I built a storeroom for it. And I had two, two kilo bottles of lysergic acid on the shelf. Uh, and and built that facility. So, but there were lots of stories of of having to rush rush a technician home in the lab and build something. And <laughs> did you catch that? Gideon Shapiro inherited the lab and the LSD collection from Hoffman once Hoffman retired, and organized all of it. So while researching for the series, we heard from Stephen Kinzer that the CIA bought every single ampule of LSD that was ever made from Sandoz. And Sandoz did not have anything left. So we asked how true this supposition was. And I guess you already guessed the answer. No. I mean, I, they, they might, I don't know about the, the supply of, of LSD or, you know, that which was a marketed product. But no, I mean, they have a storeroom. They might have, they might have destroyed or done something. But again, like all urban legends, I tend to be skeptical. So there were two kilos of lysergic acid sitting <laughs> around probably somewhere. I mean, an old stuff, but, um, and, and samples, you know, basically samples. So, um, and, and they decompose. But one of the problems with arrogant alkaloids is they oxidize very easily. And just like psilocybin, when they talk about peeling back the mushroom and seeing colors, so these molecules are also tricky because they're, uh, tend to be unstable uh, as well. Beneath the gossip and the urban legends, Gideon has given us some crucial nuggets to hold on to. Ergot alkaloids from which LSD was synthesized is very difficult to work with. They have lots of metabolites and side effects, and dosing and testing can be super tricky. Then we heard that molecules like LSD and even psilocybin can oxidize easily and as a result lose potency over time. Now let's go back to Gideon and ask him how, in his mind, Psychedelics should be viewed via the lens of drug discovery scientists and companies. Here is Gideon Shapiro once again. And now what we're seeing is, you know, the, these applications are just tremendous. Uh, and, and one of the reasons industry, I think, is faster, and it was really accelerated this, is the field that I lately worked in is called NMDA. The first, the biggest breakthrough in psychiatry in 50 years, I think, was on the cover of Time magazine is the FDA approval of ketamine as the first major new treatment for MDD. Okay, and so what we know is that also, that this basically is a whole new paradigm shift in psychiatry. It used to be, for almost all conditions, what do you do? You get up in the morning, I just did today, I took my blood pressure medicine, every day you take your pill, right? And you stabilize whatever's going on. Uh, every day. And the same thing with Prozac. You get up, you take your Prozac every day. And that sort of dampens you down, right? And that brings you to some baseline level. This new medicine with ketamine, you take it once. You don't take it every day. You take it on an intermittent schedule. And so essentially what this mechanism is, is you're not dampening down uh, a buzzing circuit that's buzzing all the time. What you're doing is you're approaching the disease as the neuro circuit. The brain is a whole circuit, not just one neuron or whatever. You have multiple neurotransmitters functioning with each other. You have circuitry, 
let's say, the corticothalamic circuitry and striatal, which are electric, essentially electric loops in the brain that, that essentially are dysfunctional in neuropsychiatry at some level. So they're out of sync, if you will, right? They have too, they're too amped up. And what you're able to do with these new therapies, which really started with electroshock, is by giving a single pulse, right? You reset the circuit. So it's like your circuit breaker goes off, right? And you go in the garage and you flick it back. You don't sit there and hold your finger on it the whole time and take it every day. You just do a reset, right? And so what ketamine is this new mechanism that you can actually try to approach these diseases at a circuit reset level. It started with electroshock, right? Which sort of got this bad name, right? From one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But electroshock is actually a very great therapy that takes people who are really ruined and can be life transformative, right? They're basically, you know, someone who can't even talk and catatonic can, can be essentially cured for a certain period of time. And what, what we like to look at and call these new medicines are chemical electroshock, essentially. So what you're doing is you're now able with a pill, with the approval of Spravato by J&J about a year ago, which is nasal ketamine, you're able to reset the circuit. I mean, you come in, you can get a treatment, and then you won't have to be treated again until the circuit drifts back to dysfunction. So it's not like a miracle cure. One thing that, you know, we're sort of very disappointed about is this idea that with the new psychedelic, you know, the first generation psychedelics, that somehow if you've got a disease, you come in, you have a trip once, and you're cured for life. Well, that's true maybe if you don't have a real serious disease if you've got a life you're, you've got a life event right you see religion and you accept the new philosophy of life but if you've got a if you've got a brain that's got a circuit dysfunction it, it doesn't get reset for life right these things you have a disease and fundamentally you drift in and out of circuit function dysfunction right and so what yeah. we're all about here the one nice thing is this sort of circuit reset can work for many different diseases. Everybody's focused on depression because that's the multi-billion dollar market and the most patient. But OCD, PTSD, all these, a lot of these neuropsychiatric diseases, just like they can be treated with the blunt SSRI for many of them, right, can be treated. And the most important thing is this affects the really, really, really tough cases. So MDD, where you're suicidal, SSRIs, there's, no, there's been no medicine for that. So 30% of the depressed patients for whom there was nothing, right, before, now have a treatment that works for a lot of them with ketamine, essentially. And so ketamine, what, this is a long story, but what I'm trying to get to is ketamine is now embraced by the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry has recognized that this paradigm shift isn't going to stop. This idea of treating someone with a neurocircuit with a drug is out of the bag. And so now, what's next, right? Ketamine is done. I've been working in that field now uh, for a next generation ketamine that's safer because ketamine, you've got to go into the hospital, right? You have hemodynamic side effects uh, that can be quite severe. So you have to be monitored, right, for hours, at least two hours before you can be released, be safe to drive on your own, to get your blood pressure 
you have this huge spike in blood pressure potentially, right? You have cognitive dysfunction for transient. But then they release you and typically you might not have to come back. Well, one week, two weeks, one month. We don't really know, right? But what we know is you have to come back, right? So what we know is with, with the experience with ketamine that it's not a lifetime cure, right? Even the people who do get treated have to come back and we don't even know yet. The time's just early. You know, for the millions of people, what kind of a schedule will they have to come back on? So that's, that's why the pharmaceutical industry seen this and now psychedelics are the next. So this is the next big mechanism, which A, is based in science, because it's based on a receptor. Although it is magic, we know how it works. We know that the one of the 5-HT2A receptor is responsible for the effect. So it's right for drug engineering, essentially. That just, just the kind of thing we do where the first generation drug, whether it's a blood pressure medicine or a statin, right? The first one never wins. Right? The ones who win, it comes, you know, Jen, what are you taking? I'm taking this. I've never heard of it. Well, that's because now it's the third generation uh, of this drug that's even safer, right? So what's the doctor going to do? Give you something that's less safe or give you something that's safer? Well, they both work. You're going to get the safer drug, right? <laughs> so, so that is sort of, you know, where this is all moving. Uh, this is not a fad. This is a new revolution. In, in science and the, the pharma industry, to our surprise, you know, I think it's getting on board, accelerating uh, that rate of looking. At, and, and it's also a poll, right? They have their drugs are coming off market. So this combination of a totally new paradigm in neuropsychiatry, which has been dead, you know, how many more dopamine blockers can you make for schizophrenia? Nobody's had any new ideas, right? And now all of a sudden, there's new ideas that science-based that really works, it's a revolution. Um, and, and one drug is already on the market from, with a related, a, a different mechanism, but the same approach of correcting the circuit. Um, it, it's gonna be embraced. And plus, and that on the other side with a pull from all these depressed patients who now, you know, have nothing and they're now seeing there's a new type of medicine. So Gideon Shapiro is the Vice President of Discovery at Bright Minds Bio. And we also had a chance to speak to its CEO, Ian McDonald. But unlike Gideon, who so eloquently explained the scientific angle, Ian was an investment banker who decided that he wanted to make healthcare his primary focus in life. Let's listen to Ian McDonald's story. Yeah, uh, I got interested in the space in 2015. I read an article somewhere i can't uh, i can't recall exactly where it was but um essentially saw the light saw that these drugs had exceptional promise in treating hard street neuropsychiatric disorders and with that went down the rabbit hole read every single research paper and get my hands on and started having conversations with those influential authors it became apparent quite quickly that while these drugs we're seeing today, uh, drugs like psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, are efficacious. They lack uh, certain drug-like characteristics necessary for them to be accepted by the big pharma industry. So uh, with that, I developed a thesis of creating these next generation drugs, assembled a team, and uh, away we went. 
uh, one of those authors was Alan Kozakowski, who is a uh, uh, tremendous mind in the space, and I'm proud to say one of our co-founders at Bright Minds. He's the chief scientific officer. Another another of those authors was John McCorvey, who's responsible, in my opinion, for um, the the most cutting edge science on the pharmacology side of psychedelics. He really understands what these drugs do in the body and how they act at a level probably greater than anyone in psychedelics today. So Ian assembled people like Gideon Shapiro, Alan Kozikowski, who is a well-renowned name in drug discovery and startups. And with these people, he started Bright Minds Bio. So who invested in their company? Here is Gideon Shapiro again as to how they went about their investment theses. Yeah, so the way we, I think we've actually been quite successful with that. Um, if you'll, from, from the investments we received, because we received now, now we've got pretty validation that we've received investments on both sides. So we have all comers. We have those kinds of investors who are, you know, wealthy people who, you know, are in the psychedelic cult, if you will, that are, you know, believers and really understand that, right? And, and, and want that and believe in that. Uh, but they do understand when you, again, if you can explain it that we want to reach, if you put it in terms that we want this medicine for everyone, and that is the goal, then that's, what are you going to say? You're going to say no to that? You know, it's like, you're going to say no to treating millions of people of broad diseases. So we've got, you know, as they say, we're bringing everybody under the tent. And I think what's more, what's more revolutionary is not that group of people, the group of people who already know you don't have to convince. Right? The people who know the psychedelic medicine and have experienced it and have changed their lives, right? The people we have to convince, and, and they're not big money, generally, right? I mean, yes, they're millions, maybe even hundreds of millions, but they're not billions, right? To change a whole world, you don't need millions, you need billions. And that means you need big money, hedge funds, VCs and you need pharma buy-in because the VCs aren't going to come if they don't believe that pharma will eventually buy in, right? So I think that's the harder part that to our surprise is happening way faster than we thought, even a year ago. I think the momentum here, this sort of paradigm shift um, is happening uh, quite quickly. Right, and I and I think the good news is, it's not a fad, right? It's not like cannabis where it's a fad and they're different things because these are prescription drugs with a model to treat people, you know, in, in as a classical drug. I think investors don't have to worry, right, that this is going to come and go, and they have to ride the momentum play of getting in and getting out because this medicine is here to stay. And it's not just cannabis. It's not just THC or, you know, or, or dihydro. This is a multitude of drugs that affect a brain system that's fundamental to many diseases. And so what, what I like to think of it the way Merck, the head of Merck, the, one of the greatest of all time was named Roy Vagelis, right? He basically ran Merck in the heyday. That's what really the cholesterol drugs, all that stuff came out of the 80s. When he was, and he was a chemist, when chemists used to run companies, right? Not, not MBAs and lawyers, right? That's when we made real medicine, right? At a different level. 
And what he said was, make the medicine and they will come, right? So the idea is, yes, just point in that direction where I'm going to make a difference. I've got a medical target that I believe in. And even if you're not quite sure, which is the case with the psychedelics now, where it exactly might land, it's a gold mine, right? Because you know there's such a fundamental uh, neurocircuitry that you're affecting is vital to so many different mental processes. And the thing is, even though they're different diseases, what we're finding out, and what's already true, in fact, is that even with SSRIs, which is a blunt instrument, I mean, the main tip today is started with Prozac, it's become a blunt instrument because it's safe that you give to everybody for every, any, every mental condition, practically, except for schizophrenia, right? You get a script, oh, you're feeling a little bad, oh, here, take Prozac. Oh, you got a little OCD, okay, take Prozac. It works, it might work. It's safe. You'll never have sex again, but fine. <laughs> so Gideon just casually slid in some very interesting nuggets in that last answer. He said that if you were to use the molecular mechanisms of these psychedelic drugs, and if they can affect various disease conditions beyond psychiatric disorders and treat a broad variety of conditions... Who wouldn't want a piece of that pie? Well, why'd he say that? As explained in episode 5 of this series, where we spoke of psychedelic pharmacology and how there are close to 17 different serotonin receptor subtypes, one can make selective modulators of these receptors and thereby help to modify various disease conditions, because not every serotonin receptor influences a psychedelic experience. BrightMinds Bio has finished its latest round of financing and is exploring serotonin receptor modulators for conditions like neuropsychiatric disorders, including depression and PTSD, but also excitatory conditions like epilepsy, metabolic disorder with neural underpinnings like binge eating disorder, chronic pain, and opioid use disorder. So we will pause here with the BrightMinds Bio story and turn our attention to another company that is garnering some attention in the space. Cybin Inc. is another company among the ones that we researched that has a fantastic team of researchers and one that has a different chemistry approach to psychedelic drug discovery. While many others focus on synthesizing newer molecules like like 5-methoxy-DMT without killing Sonoran desert toads or synthesize DMT, Cybin is taking an entirely different approach Let's hear about it from Doug Drysdale, CEO of Cybin. I'm Doug Drysdale. I'm the CEO of Cybin. And uh, at Cybin, what we're looking to do is we're looking to revolutionize the way that we treat mental health disorders such as addiction and depression. Uh, And there's a real opportunity here to completely transform how we do that. When you look at some studies that we've seen out of Johns Hopkins and uh, NYU using psychedelics in these conditions, we've seen patients that have many months of remission after just one or two treatments. And that's clearly radically different than the way we treat depression and addiction today. I think what also is quite unique about what we're doing is that we know an awful lot about these molecules. We know a lot about psilocybin and LSD, MDMA and DMT because these molecules have been discovered for, for decades. The challenge is that many of those molecules have issues of their own that make them therapeutically difficult. Uh, Psilocybin has very low bioavailability. 
Uh, MDMA has a very long half-life and uh, DMT has, has a very short half-life and, and almost no oral bioavailability. So collectively, they're, they're not ideal from a therapeutic point of view. So what we're doing at Cybin is we're using medicinal chemistry and using drug delivery systems to address each of those challenges of those molecules and make them more therapeutically useful and more scalable and accessible by patients. So beyond the usual facade that drug discovery executives provide via press releases, we probed Doug a bit more. And Doug was very excited to share the information beyond the usual template pitch that he provides to investors and others. Here is Doug, and we are extremely thankful to him for sharing this information. Nah, this, this is a very good question. And still lots that we don't know, uh, or lots that hasn't been studied in, in very large studies. But in some smaller academic studies with psilocybin, say out of Johns Hopkins, where they looked at psilocybin in both depression both MDD and TRD, and also in addiction, smoking cessation. Uh, they, they did follow up. There been a, there's been a number of meta-analyses where uh, we followed up with patients. And a good number of them, around 80% or so, saw continued benefit for many months, five to six months in, in some cases, depending on the study that you look at. So clearly there's some durability of benefit. What we don't know, of course, is uh, exactly how long uh, that, that, that durability lasts and in which, and it does it differ between different patient types, different indications, different dosages uh, of, of these treatments. So that's work that we will need to do once we get to, to market for sure and as part of our continuing development. Our clinical studies are aimed at single dose, single use, uh, partly for simplicity of design and partly for uh, this ease of, of, of getting through the regulatory process. Uh, but it's certainly of interest to us uh, to determine what that ongoing dosing might be. The indication out of those studies I mentioned with Johns Hopkins may, may be that patients need to take these two, three times a year. But that's, in my mind, that's still a dramatic improvement uh, on the, the chronic use of SSRIs, which we've seen in meta-analysis are really no better than placebo in treating moderate depression over the long term. Sybin's approach is in a way to drive better compliance, which raises an interesting question for a population that does not want to take chronic dosing. I, I agree. In fact, I, I, I take that a step further to say that we may need to rethink uh, how we treat mental illness, mental disorders completely. So we're used to going to the doctor, taking, getting a prescription and taking a pill every day. Um, but this, this requires a, a different kind of investment, personal investment. It means going to a clinic, and spending sometimes maybe multiple hours investing in your own mental health and and all of the, the, the supporting therapy that may go with that because we've seen that the, the integration of the findings from these sessions into a therapy regime improve, improves the outcomes so but that's not the way we do things today you know that's so that impacts training it impacts education impacts infrastructure uh, so we will have to rethink a little bit uh, how, how we approach mental health treatment in the context of these these uh, medications. We looked uh, at the, some of the treatments that are being developed today in this space, and you have MDMA being developed for PTSD that has, I think, 70 hours of therapy around it. And we've seen it as an oral version of psilocybin that's being, being developed that has you know, a very robust uh, um, therapy program around that and very long acting in maybe six or eight hours and you take just those two examples and you, you try to project forward how those might scale 
And it's hard to see, frankly. It's hard to see how we scale that. We know that just from talking to physicians and nurses around Spirovado, esketamine for uh, for depression, that just the, the REMS there that requires patients to be observed for two hours after treatment is a big hurdle. They don't want to spare a nurse for, to babysit a patient for two hours. They don't want to give up a room for two hours. So these very long-acting treatments we see as facing a real challenge in terms of scale. I'm certain that the, the most severe, most resistant patients will benefit and will get them, but we're looking at this from a much more holistic uh, perspective. So right at the bench, we're focused on shorter acting or on faster acting treatments. So for example, we have a deuterated tryptamine program. And with that, we're taking very short acting tryptamines. So take something like, I'll give you an example, say something like DMT or derivatives of DMT that have a very short duration, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, and a, but a very high spike. So they, they come with lots of side effects as well. What we're able to do through deuteration is selectively replace the hydrogen atoms on the molecule. It has the, uh, the effect of increasing the molecular weight of the molecule, but also slowing the breakdown through oxidation and through demethylation of that molecule in the bloodstream. And so you end up then by being able to reduce that high spike, the plasma spike, extending the half-life and having a smoother a PK curve, pharmacokinetic curve, that then we can tailor to around an hour, an hour and a half, or something more that fits more within a regular treatment paradigm. You combine that with uh, with inhalation delivery as we're doing, you then get a very rapid onset of action, very close to IV, so the patient's not waiting around, and tremendous control. So then we can control both the intensity and the duration of treatment. And when you can get to that state, and we hope we can get to that, we're, we're heading into phase one before the end of this year with our first of these, uh, then you've got treatments that are far more scalable. Then I think the infrastructure and the reimbursement is, is a lot, the, the hurdles are far lower. So. Now let us explore one of the ways in which one can address the issues of ensuring that a smaller dose of the drug is delivered for a quicker effect and potentially lowering of untoward effects. Oral administration means that the drug is absorbed from the gut and from the intestines where absorption takes place, the drug is then shunted through a special circulation that exists between the intestines and the liver. This circulation is called as the portal circulation. No prize for guessing why it's called portal circulation as it ports the nutrients absorbed into the blood in the intestines to the liver to enable storage and processing in the liver. So drugs taken via the oral route will undergo what the pharmacologist will refer to as first pass metabolism. And the mere nature of this pathway is that only a fraction of what is ingested is available for action. Instead, if the drug is taken via the nose as an inhalational mechanism, it prompts immediate diffusion of the drug through the lung into the blood, which goes to the left side of the heart and pumped into systemic circulation, including the brain. So you can see how the inhalational route can be beneficial. Medicinal chemists will spend many days to months to years tweaking the properties of the drug to ensure that the drug can be dissolved for the right type of administration route. Let's hear again from Doug Drysdale, CEO of Cybin. 
Yes, of course, and you know each of those each of the different delivery routes has its, its challenges. Uh, what I mentioned was inhalation, actually not not nasal, uh, but inhalation is a platform that we're using. It's a we're actually using a, a pre-existing, pre-approved platform that we're uh, putting the, the the molecules into, uh, and other uh, delivery mechanisms and routes too. We look we would look at IV and IM and various others as well, and uh, <clears throat> decide which of those to take forward depending on on the results uh, that we see. Uh, but uh, I think you know, very interesting, uh, very interesting results so far. And if we can provide that rapid onset and fine control, uh, then I think you know, we're really onto something. Is Cybin focused strictly on mental health disorders? What else are they looking at? Yeah, these these molecules are unusual in that they seem to uh, have uh, shown some benefit in, in many different uh, indications. So our lead program, which is a sublingual film version of psilocybin where we hope to see that faster onset of action, hopefully a, a shorter duration as well. We're targeting major depressive disorder there. Uh, there was a great study out of Johns Hopkins uh, in November uh, last year, published in JAMA Psychiatry, which showed a 71% uh, effect size. Um, so 71% of patients had a greater than 50% reduction in their depressive symptoms in that study at four weeks uh, in major depressive disorder. So that was very encouraging and you know, obviously very supportive of the work with it. For the later programs, the tryptamines and the phenethylamines, we're looking at a, a range of treatment-resistant psychiatric disorders. So that could be, uh, it could be treatment-resistant depression, uh, could be suicidal ideation. You can imagine that an inhalation delivery uh, for a patient in a suicidal state would, could be very useful in the ER or uh, a venue like that. And potentially OCD. So we will decide on the exact indication and, and the uh, the order of those indications as, as we get, go along through uh, development. And then we have a further program that we're targeting uh, addiction. And again, I think that these uh, we've seen some good data in smoking cessation. We've seen some good data in alcohol use disorder. It's very likely that uh, these treatments could work in opioid use disorder. Uh, so, uh, it, so if that's the case, then we'd likely to pursue all of those indications. It's just we we have to determine which order we do that in, what the clinical pathway is, what the animal models are, etc. So, a little bit of work to do there. But over the next several months, we'll be disclosing the precise indications and the order that we're we're coming to mar- plan to come to market with. Oh, and one more thing: the inhalational route and the sublingual or medicine placed under the tongue have similar drug uptake and less first pass metabolism route. Because just like something that is inhaled goes into the lungs and into the left side of the heart to be pumped into systemic circulation, the sublingual route ensures that the drug is absorbed into the small capillaries under the tongue and goes right into the heart through the veins and pumped into circulation bypassing the gut in a situation where the drug will be taken orally. Cybin is doing more in the innovation space, bridging the technology and biology, but we'll come to that in a bit. Now back to Bright Minds Bio. We left that conversation at a place where we said they are exploring and exploiting a range of molecular tweaking of chemicals to understand how their molecules affect the various serotonin receptor subtypes. So every receptor, like a key, can be turned on or off. So turning it on triggers a cascade of molecular events which is understood for some but not so much for the others. And this is called a stimulation or with a fancy word that the pharmacologists use called as agonism. In contrast, a drug molecule can jam the receptor 
and prevent the lock from being open. And if you equate that to a villain in the movie, you can call it as an antagonist. So Brightmind's bio is exploiting the chemistry to better understand the serotonin receptor chemistry to either stimulate or block the receptors. While many companies in the past have tried to build serotonin receptor modulators, for example, ones that was alluded to by Joe Neal in episode 5 for migraines or schizophrenia treatments, they've been unsuccessful because a lot of the serotonin receptor pharmacology has taken a while to be uncovered and in the last decade since 2010, almost all major pharmaceutical companies that used to do such work and such type of chemistry have pulled out of neuropsychiatric research. The reason provided by many include lack of good translational models and high degree of risk between preclinical research and clinical efficacy. So having tools like the psychedelic compounds and understanding how these psychedelic molecules that are fairly simple in structure compared to some of those heavy organic molecules with multiple cyclic aromatic rings has been a great starting point and is currently driving a lot of interest from both scientists and investors. While psychedelic effects are a result of 5-HT2A receptor agonism or stimulation, Brightmind's Bio is also looking at the 5-HT2C receptor for conditions like the non-opioid pain relief, seizure disorder, binge eating disorders and even Alzheimer's. The first preclinical study in an animal model of binge eating disorder was published recently where Brightmind's Bio collaborated with an investigator at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. And in addition to looking at the 5-HT2C receptor, they're also looking at targeting of the 5-HT2A through selective mechanisms for developing the next generation molecules for PTSD and depression. In addition, Brightmind's Bio is also looking at the combination of stimulating both the 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C. The combination actions on 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C is being explored for pain treatment. For anybody taking a prescription pain medications, you might know the status of addiction that the opioids have left us with. So Brightmind's Bio is exploring a combination of 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C modulation for non-opioid pain relief. Here is Gideon Shapiro, Vice President of Brightmind's Bio, explaining how and why they started working on serotonin receptor modulators and drug discovery with a dash of philosophy and storytelling. We almost like to say we like to take the magic out of the magic mushrooms, right? So try to basically, you know, demystify. Yes, it is a mystical experience, but you know, science's job is to somewhat demystify as much as possible and bring it to the level, you know, of the graspable. Um, so that's the balance uh, in this field of trying to balance that that element of the the mushroom hunters uh, of the world and the, and basically the cult of psychedelics uh, versus the establishment, right, was rejected in all these years, and to come somewhere in the middle 
and also the fringe groups to work on it um, and, and bring the science and sort of bridge the gap between those elements and, and let everybody understand it's not this or the other. It's not, oh, you're the establishment, you know, right. we're, we're against that. We don't, we, even investors, oh, you know, we don't want to invest in that. We're investing in, you know, changing the world. So, well, you got to change the world in, in the framework of, in a legal framework, if you know, and, uh, to really help, if you really want to help people, then if they're your goal, you set your goal, if your goal is to help people, then the question is not, oh, is this, is this magic or is this my, my special field? But how do I do that? How do I bring magic or the magic of this medicine so that it reaches millions of people, not just, you know, hundreds of people? And that's what sort of we're trying to do. Um, and we're in a very lucky position because, you know, that level of making medicine for the masses legally, right, is the domain of the pharmaceutical industry. You cannot achieve the goal, that goal, without the biotech industry. So to accelerate this, you want buy-in as fast as you can. I mean, we're not trying to become Amazon and take over the world. We're trying to make this happen fast um, and get it into all of the applications that's going to take, you know, the entire pharmaceutical industry. You see what they do. I mean, I never cease to be amazed. They New great product come up. Look at the vaccines. I mean... It's just amazing, you know, uh, the power um, when the pharmaceutical industry gets behind something. So that's, that's our goal. And what is different about the approach that Bright Minds Bio is taking compared to other companies? Instead of re-engineering an existing molecule, they are looking at modulators with a fresh view, with a world-class team and scientific philosophy. Here again is Gideon Shapiro. The psychedelic field itself specifically um, we, we tend to look at more broadly as the 5-HT field. And so, Al, so in the past, nobody worked on 5-HT2A because that was psychedelic. So the whole pharmaceutical industry has been working on 5-HT compounds and 5-HT2, but the whole goal has been it's sort of not to make psychedelics. So you were screening that away. So basically, nobody even knows how to do it because you didn't want to do it. And the field at the time was really interested in this other subtype called 5-HT2C. And so 5-HT2C has been a mainstream target in the pharmaceutical industry for other neuropsychiatric disorders, right? And so Alan, uh, we're so lucky because our co-founder was working on the neuropsychiatry applications of this with Brian Roth, who interviewed before, was, you know, the superstar who actually discovered that in, within this 5-HT2 class, you essentially have three flavors, A, B, and C. And Brian actually was one of the founders who discovered that 5-HT2B agonists have cardiotoxicity, right? And that has been a major achievement and is a problem with the current psychedelic compounds. And in the pharmaceutical industry, you, they won't touch it. If you have any 5-HT2B agonist activity, Many drugs have been removed from the market. So, you know, that was, he made that fundamental discovery. Um, and so that was the drivers in the past were no 5-HT2B and no 5-HT2A, but if you had 5-HT2C, what can you treat? Well, initially the people at Roche knew, were interested in neuropsychiatry in the late 90s. And then the field moved to, 
okay, we can use these metabolic diseases became hot, obesity became the hot area. And then other company called Arena and other companies were focused on developing that for obesity, uh, metabolic disease. So the 5-HT2C, Alan then, he basically was Brian Roth focused on neuropsychiatry. And they realized that, you know, the real excitement could be in schizophrenia. So let's investigate and see what these things do and, and delve more into neuropsychiatry. So they did that and designed, and Alan designed, beautifully selective, potent compounds, next generation to the market approved drug, which was called Lorcatherin. So Lorcatherin was the only drug it was developed by Arena. It's called Belvix. Uh, and they wanted to market it, and they marketed it for obesity. And so we were really lucky, uh, and are very lucky at this position because Alan's work, he invented a new class of compounds that are very 5-HT2C selective, that the excitement for us is now, I think, clear. Now with the wave going to neuropsychiatry, their, their effects on obesity were actually very marginal where it got approved. And so actually in 2020, the drug got pulled from the market because long, so these long-term post-marketing studies showed a slight increase in cancer risk for this first-generation drug called Lorcatherin. So this did two things. It shut down all the research in neuropsychiatry. All these people were trying to move and do clinical investigations for drug addiction, for nicotine abuse, all these potential indications for this 5-HT2C have stopped, and so the, the people are basically begging. You know, there's a huge need for a new marketed drug that has all this potential. And so the patent was, Alan's work was novel. This new class of molecules was patented, and Bright Minds has been able to license, uh, and, it's, and it's also an issued patent. So I think we're one of the only, the, the only psychedelic company that has an issued, granted global patent in IP, which is essential for you to partner with the pharmaceutical industry. So there are some interesting ways to look at this. And as someone who worked in the pharmaceutical industry, let me tell you how the value creation works. In the case of pharmaceutical entities, companies or startups spend a lot of time synthesizing the right molecule and performing tests prior to human clinical trials. Once they enter the clinical trials, or when they are about to, they file for patents on the chemical that enable them to capture value and exclusivity with regard to how they synthesize a particular molecule and patent claims are eventually granted for steps in synthesis. In certain cases, patent applications may not be filed until much later when the molecule is in the later stage of development. The reason for this is because as an investigational molecule, pharmaceutical development is a long game that spans multiple years. So filing for intellectual property and getting patent claims granted is a balance of when one potentially hits commercialization and what benefits the timing of the filing made to the patent office is going to be. So in very simple words, you would want to file the patent as late as possible such that you have many years of exclusivity left when you commercialize the drug molecule. But unlike traditional pharmaceutical drug discovery, psychedelics and companies in the space like Cybin, Bright Minds Bio, 
Compass Pathways and others like Atai Life Sciences and MindMed etc. are filing early. It is interesting that each one of these companies have picked a different starting point. For example, Cybin has deuterated psilocin as its starting point with a goal to modify the physico-chemical properties of the investigational molecule that they are developing for depression. Others have taken DMT or 5-methoxy-DMT as the starting point. Companies like Bright Minds Bio have taken a completely different approach to discovery of new molecules. And here is Gideon Shapiro again. If you don't have patent protection, you've got, a, you've got no partnership possible. So we've got a great, a great, we're so lucky, we're in a great position where there's no drug on the market. There's a huge unmedical medical need. There's a body of literature that really is showing that in neuropsychiatry and even in neurology, there are tremendous uh, applications. We have IP, so we we're developing that ourselves, but we're sure there are going to be partners that are very interested. Uh, the mechanism is, is really bona fide, big pharma, you know, recognized. So um, we just, we just want to run forward with that. We've got a great asset to start with uh, in the pipeline that's in the psychedelic family writ large because it's just a 5-HT2 uh, agonist compound. And then, and then we build out our pipeline of psychedelics with the same approach, making it selective, again, removing the toxic effect, which is this 5-HT2B, which nobody has done. So the, the real secret story is you cannot dose today's psychedelics like psilocybin, let's say or LSD, um, because you know if you need to dose that more than once every six months, I think now you can dose it twice in the current clinical protocol. We know from our experience that different patients are going to need different reset frequencies of dosing. Different diseases are going to need different doses, different regimens. Right, so you you really need something that's safe. So, and, and if you have something that's safe, even if it's dosed less frequently, what are you going to take? Something that could basically kill you and give you cardiovalvulopathy, or something that's safe and works? Um, safety is key. I mean, for anything. I mean, the, the FDA number one is do no harm, be safe. Uh, number two is efficacy. So, a little. Uh, <laughs> Efficacy is important. This class of new psych of, of regular psychedelics is great, great breakthrough. But you know, we see it's just the beginning. Did you hear that? Did you listen very carefully? The way that some of these companies are thinking at this point is to develop these molecules and have two options: one, to commercialize it themselves, which has its own risks in execution and requires that they build out an entire manufacturing, supply chain, and sales infrastructure from scratch. Or partner with existing pharmaceutical companies into partnerships or acquisitions. And the most amazing thing is, none of the major pharmaceutical companies that have existing commercialization mechanisms have invested in psychedelic research. So it opens up an interesting possibility. When is the right time to jump? And what will the right value for acquisition or partnerships be without overpaying? So this will be a great cat and mouse game to watch out for in the near future. Another interesting area that companies like Bright Minds Bio are tapping into is what is referred to as biased signaling. Let me explain this with an example of a classic receptor. The receptor that binds to native neurotransmitters like adrenaline. 
Agents like adrenaline bind to a certain class of molecular locks called receptors, which share some structural similarities to serotonin receptors. As explained in episode 5, the episode where we spoke to Dr. Brian Roth from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, imagine the adrenaline molecule binding to the receptor. If you remember, Brian Roth back in episode 5 and Gideon just earlier in this episode described the drug binding to the receptor as the key sliding into the lock. So when the key opens the lock, it triggers the motion of a number of levers and cogwheels that is equivalent to the molecular cascades. But the beauty of these molecular cascades is that you have one to prevent overstimulation and acts as a turnoff switch, and another one that favors activation of the proteins downstream of the receptor to elicit the function of the receptor like increased heart rate when adrenaline binds to its receptor. In traditional molecules like adrenaline, this is a fail-safe mechanism where overstimulation is prevented. But in certain disease conditions, the same protective mechanisms can become counterproductive and cause disease. In the last two decades, there has been an explosion of specialized chemistry to perform biased signaling, one to favor the switch-off mechanism or one to keep the molecular process going. I mean, it's the yin and the yang. Pharmacology and chemistry go hand in hand. You spin the circle and that's life. So the pharmacology is the key driver. All we chemists do is we have ideas, but we don't know what's going to work. We need to make molecules, test them, and the pharmacology is the key. And that's what Ian was saying. What our, we are fortunate in having, you need the world's leading, you need the world's leading understanding of the pharmacology of the second messenger system. It's very complicated, like you said. You have different signaling pathways. So first the molecule binds to the receptor, and then these signaling pathways now that have been worked out, like you said, in terms of how do they couple, how do they create a signal, um, whether it's a restin, right, which then basically turns the system down versus G, the G proteins which stimulate. And so the prevailing theory is right now what you want, typically why agonists are bad drugs. I mean, a pharmaceutical person say, oh, you don't develop an agonist because when you give an agonist, if you give it once, you give it twice, the system desensitizes, and then it doesn't work anymore, and that's called tachyphylaxis, right? So the key to having an agonist work is either it's not a full agonist, it hits as a partial signal, or what's really the revolution now that everybody's talking about is biased signaling. So if you can tease out the desensitization pathway from the activation pathway and be selective that you're just activating and you're down-regulating and turning the system down over the long term. Um, So you need the science to run that assays. You need the molecular. What's happened now, the revolution, is just in the last few years do we have the molecular biology tools to clone these receptors and express them with the signaling molecule to tease this apart. And so that's where you need cutting-edge pharmacology that's been working in the field for long. I mean, Brian Roth is is the granddaddy of of this field, who Alan did his initial work with 5-HTC, so that whole program they developed together. And now, you know, we've got, you know, the family, the pedigree is, you know, John 
trained with Brian, and so we have the guy who actually did all the work as a grad student postdoc, you know, running the assay technology uh, that gives us, you know, the leg up because that that's absolutely uh, critical. And, and just to you know to put it in perspective, all historically you have to redo everything because before people just did binding. They didn't know, is this a blocker? Is this an activator? So all of the chemistry actually has to be redone. We are redoing you know, the work from 20 years on psilocybin and analog to set a baseline because you get, the point is nobody wanted an agonist. And all of the old literature, you wouldn't even find the 5-HT2B activity. That's pretty recent, this 5-HT2B story really came out in the 2000s time frame. You know, people have been working 50 years. So, you know, we're going back to Albert Hoffman and, and to Shulgin's work. And, you know, this has been a fringe area where, you know, it's anecdotal data and we're having to apply, you know, the rigor of this modern signaling pharmacology um, to understand when we make a molecular chemical change, what does it do quantitatively? How does it affect the signal? Um, and tease that out. At some level, it's, it's complicated. At some level, it's engineering. Once you have the assay system, it's almost like you know an artificial intelligence. You crank out the data, you refine it, you do it again uh, until you get a drug. So the process is is kind of <laughs> uh, boring and brutal. But you need the tools, right? And you need the and we're, we're lucky because nobody wanted to do it. So we're sort of lucky because we have the starting base. We have probably more knowledge in in the SAR of psychedelics uh, and how to make it selective than, than anybody in the world. So this is chemical mimicry at its finest, if it works. So how do Bright Minds Bio work on such concepts? What are the underpinnings to exploiting this in various disease conditions? So that's a great question, and I'll try to make it simple. Uh, <laughs> it looks complicated, but it's actually not that complicated. Number one, the drug profile you want for any of these diseases is fairly comparable. So number one, you need, as Roy Vagalos from Merck said, you need a great drug. That's number one. So you need to have something that's safe, that, uh, you know, at, you know, that basically binds to the receptor and otherwise is going to be a safe drug to dose. And then the question is, that drug could be, then the question, which, de- which indication do you develop? And as, as you know from Big Pharma, you, know, you can develop in many indications, and the trick is picking, as a small company, if you're doing it, picking the right entry indication that gives you, for the investor, the most value, the shortest timeline to build on. The way to think about, we think about 5-HT2C initially is it controls impulsivity, right? And so impulse behaviors like addictive behaviors, OCD behaviors, even the obesity, binge eating is, is essentially how it works is on the impulse, on the eating impulse control. So all of these things we put into the bucket of impulse control, both even the opioid disorders, et cetera. So that's one way to look at that group of disorders and which one you pick that's a strategic plan that's based on market, who's your partner, whatever. What's happened in the mean, what, what happened and what Alan worked on, right, was 
was the application initially in schizophrenia and psychiatry. So Pfizer was trying to develop a drug called babucatherin. That was one of the other big pharma projects in schizophrenia. They did some big trials, right, on the animal models it works. So in terms of what it does, schizophrenia is, is all about dopamine, so it's not the 5-HT2C directly. It's how 5-HT2C impacts the dopaminergic system, which typically you want to dampen uh, for schizophrenia. So the, these compounds actually came out and were discovered to be effective in the classical animal models of dopamine release, dopaminergic behaviors, catalepsy, et cetera. So that was a wave back when Alan was doing the work where there was a big focus. Uh, but that's maybe too overblown. So there are other agitation syndromes that we thought of that aren't quite full-blown schizophrenia, which is a very hard disease, even if you've got a drug that works, to show an endpoint because the trials are so hard, right? Even if you've got a drug that works in schizophrenia, proving it clinically is tough. And, and Pfizer's results were on the edge, okay? And then that field stopped. So that's sort of, a, you know, something that you could do if partners are interested and we're sort of thinking about that. That still needs to be fleshed out, I think. The big thing that's happened really recently is the one you mentioned in neurology on epilepsies, and specifically pediatric epilepsies. And the big difference here is that that's very opportunistic. Um, it's just come out, fenfluramine was approved, uh, fintepla for Dravet uh, syndrome, even though it's cardiotoxic. So it works so well. This shows you the need that this mechanism, a serotonin, is quite amazing, right? That a serotonergic mechanism, which typically you don't think about for seizures, is working, a 5-HT mechanism. So that basically broke the door open. All of a sudden, there was this opportunity, and in the meantime, there's been a small trial with lorcaserin, right, which is specific for 5 which would be a better drug, right, but still got removed from the market, but is now being reinvestigated because the potential is huge and it would be a better drug, even though it's got its own safety issues, right? And so it's just, it's just obvious. I mean, it's not rocket science. Oh, they did it. We've got the same flavor and a better drug and it's the same mechanism. You know, I'm not saying we're geniuses <laughs> in this case. This is just, oh, there's a, there's a huge indication of unmet medical need. Everybody in the industry loves orphan diseases. That's the focus of everyone. You have these multi-billion dollar companies, you know, with 10 patient markets. So, I mean, it's just a no-brainer that if it could work in there. Um, and so we have data now. The exciting thing is we've got the only, the, the interesting thing is in this epilepsy field, almost none of the animal models work. The traditional rodent models do not work for pediatric epilepsies. It's, especially genetic ones that are inherited, mutations. It's notorious. Um, and so, in fact, the only thing that works is this genetically modified exact mutant uh, of the ion channel in the zebrafish, which you can actually run an assay in. And that is the model. So, I mean, basically, that's what we have now as a benchmark for efficacy to compare our compounds versus lorcasserine. And essentially, these things work. And now it's basically you know, using basically the mechanistic analogy to say, yes, these things can treat this. There is a development path. The beauty is it's a very nice development path. It's a very, very attractive for small company 
to be doing that kind of indication. So if you look at that, opportunistically, even though it's only recently emerging, it's really moving fast. Um, that's just, you know, an, it just fell in our, in our laps, essentially. So will all of this help design safer molecules? So I think one of the, one of the interesting questions that's not so reported is everybody knows about cardiovalvulopathy, but, you know, there are acute hemodynamic effects as yeah. well, <laughs> yeah. right? And the point is, the dirty secret is the psychedelics, you get your heart racing, your, your, your blood pressure goes up, right? And so I'm not sure how much or whatever, and that's not, you know, well captured in the databases and the literature, but there, what, what we do know is that for this class of drug, not only do you want to be selective, right, what you want is this, this, electri- this sort of reset doesn't need a long trip time. Essentially, it's a pulse. So the idea that you, need, you don't need a long trip, right? You need a reset. And what you want that reset to be is as fast as possible so you can go into the, the doctor's or the, or the therapist's office and be released not in six hours or be held overnight, but you want to go in and be released like ketamine would be ideal in sort of a two to four hour. That's now an accepted practice that's industrialized. So one thing, that's what we need to, as drug engineers is to engineer the molecule. And that's what Ian was saying, this next generation, so that it's convenient for dosing, not only that it's safe, but also that the trip time or the experience is a manageable experience on a time frame basis and uh, on a doctor's office basis and eventually, potentially even at home. So I hope you've had a flavor of what and how these companies like Cybin and Bright Minds Bio are developing. But there are significant challenges. These drugs currently are not like traditional drugs ingested once daily over multiple days to years. The ones under development needs to and will go through all the processes needed for regulatory approval and clinical testing. But even with the existing molecules, combining psychotherapy and drug therapy is challenging the psychologist and the existing practices in psychiatry. So this is only going to compound over time. And for an investor, it is an interesting conundrum. Where and how should they invest? Do they go for new drug discovery or novel discovery systems like the sublingual or the inhalational dosing? Or forget all of this and focus on investing in wellness centers? How do they decide that? Who decides that? And given that most of the effects mediated by psychedelics are subjective and psychotherapy acts as a guide through the journey, how can one clearly understand the effects more carefully so more selective and better molecules can be developed and understood? How can technological innovations help the area of psychedelic medicine? How do we go from subjective to objective endpoints to understand psychedelic drug action? Well, the interesting parts are definitely coming. You just have to wait for the next episode for that one.
You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast series was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thanked Clara Burtonshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production cost was from Cyberink and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tiryana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings including interviews are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website psychedelics.com. <laughs>